everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the hard questions about investing. This is Jason Hall, joined by my good friend, the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Jeff, hey, buddy. Hey, hey. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. It's mailbag, mailbag week. It's been a couple months, I guess, since we did a mailbag. So we're going to do a mailbag. Yeah, it's been a while. We, we usually wait till we have two or three good questions and then we'll put out a call to get a few more just to fill out the hour. And we got some good ones for this week and uh, we're looking forward to answering them, having some conversations. I, I like the way they take us in different directions. We always try to answer the question, but then we riff a little bit and it, I think, makes a good conversation. Before we do that, though, just some quick housekeeping. Still begging and pleading for likes and ratings and reviews on the podcast apps. I would really help the show get in front of more people. So if you could take literally four seconds out of your life and give us some stars and maybe even take a little longer and write a little review on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it. Also, don't forget, we got a newsletter now. You can check that out and subscribe. You get the transcript on Saturday. You get a newsletter where Jason and I write something that we feel like writing about every week. This is the fourth week of that coming up, I believe. So we're still, yeah, that's right. still getting that rolling. So if you're interested in that, check that out. And stick around for the second half of this episode, because we have an exciting announcement that we're going to announce as soon as we're done doing the mailbag. Yeah, that's right. So like I said, it's been, it's been a while since we did a mailbag and we have, we've got some questions that we've had for a while. We've got a, like a text group of, of some friends of the show and, and people that we, that we know professionally that had some questions that they wanted us to answer as well. So we've got a pretty good, pretty good group of questions, Jeff. So. I'm going to dive right in here with the first one. This is from our good friend, uh, Colin Wah, who's a great friend of the show, his, is really engaged, and has had a lot of questions for us in the past. And I really like his question here. First, He actually had a couple questions. So the first one, where do you think capital is scarce right now? I like this question a ton because th this is really useful to Useful maybe isn't the right word, but when you think about capital, right, this is large investors, private equity, venture funds, uh, people funding startup businesses, all that kind of thing. Banks, where they're lending, like all of those things, companies that are going public, secondary offerings, like all of those are, are, are capital, right? People that are looking for capital, businesses that are looking for capital or capital providers. So. This is a fun, fun question. Jeff, you want me to start this one off or do you? So the first thing that came to mind when I read this is, and this is something that I follow pretty closely, particularly having followed Silicon Valley Bank and followed the tech, tech market for a number of years. I can tell you where capital is extremely scarce right now, and that's venture capital, right? Essentially, everything that happened with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank the knock-on effects that took out Signature, and then, of course, ended up leading to the failure of First Republic, is because capital is very, very scarce if you're a startup, particularly a high-tech startup right now. Last year was a bad year. This year, I'm not sure if it's going to be worse. Probably won't be worse. Like uh, More deals will probably get funded this year, but maybe the total dollars is not going to be as high. And certainly not at the kind of valuations that we've seen. So that's definitely an area where capital is super, super duper. And that, I mean, it, 
you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that what venture capital is doing and what private equity is doing actually does have a lot of an impact on what happens in the public markets. Oh yeah. Right. So one of the big sort of things that was a, a big trend back in 2020 and 2021 was just tons of companies coming to the public markets, some of them way too early in their cycles. And you're seeing the results of that now where they're not, they weren't profitable when they came to the public markets. They're still not profitable. They're struggling to, to stay alive. And in a, in a normal quote unquote environment prior to this bubble we saw after the pandemic, those companies might've stayed private for another six, seven, eight years, but they wouldn't have come public when they did. So I like to think about these questions through the lens of like what it can mean to individual investors. And to me, what private equity and what venture capital is doing or not doing does have a, an impact on us as public market investors. Yeah. I just, Jeff, I want to kind of walk through a little bit about what you were saying and kind of how I think about it, because, you know, we, we know the interest rate environment has changed substantially over the past year, but just to really hammered home. Again, th these are levels of interest rates we haven't seen in 16, 17 years. It's, it's, it's pretty stark what's changed. And really you go back to 2010, 2011, 2012, people have talked about it a lot, but I, I just, I don't, I don't think people really maybe understand the repercussions of that ultra low, not just the 2020, 2021 period, but 2012 through to really 2018, 2019, the Fed started raising rates a little bit before COVID, right? So there was already a plan in place to start bringing rates back up closer to like historical levels from that ultra low rate environment that we had been in for like almost a decade. And one of the things that happens when you see those protracted periods of, of low rates is you see money creep out of fixed income and into equity. So fixed income is debt. You get a fixed r return, right? It's a clear return. It's the yield that you get. And then you get your money back when at the end of the term for that bond or whatever the debt is, right? Equity, you, you, own, you own a stake in the, in the enterprise. So you take on ownership risk, right? The business fails. Everybody else gets paid before you do. The business struggles. You lose money because it's not worth what you paid. All of those things come into play. So you saw this massive risking on and a lot of money flowed to venture capital, these venture capital outfits that they're not just, they're not just investing their own capital. They're investing other people's capital too. They act as asset managers. That was actually one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank did, one of SBB Financial's businesses was bundling that together. So what we've, what we've seen is not just money running away from tech, but money running to a more certain yield. So that's a big part of it. And so, so the threshold for risk has changed, right? With, with rising interest rates, because if you can get that, that minimum, if you can meet your minimum hurdle rate for return in treasuries, you're going to own 30 day treasuries. You're not going to, you're not going to invest in a money burning startup. But one of the things that changed over that, that decade period was that a lot more ideas got funded maybe than necessarily made sense as businesses, right? Lots of great 
products got funded that didn't necessarily have the legs to stand on their own, but there was a lot more money that would flow into them. So again, you think about the valuations of what Facebook went public for. Now Meta is Meta now, what it went public for versus what Amazon.com. Amazon.com was a few hundred million dollars, right? When it went public versus tens of billions for, for, for Meta back when it was Facebook. So a lot of things have changed, right? In, in that regard. And, and I think you're going to see venture capital is still going to fund those, those moonshots, right? The, the ideas before they're profitable with the ideas to get them profitable. And then you go public, right? You get them to a critical mass and then you go public. Facebook was one of those. It was basically already at the point of profitability. But so many of those companies that have gone public over the past eight to 10 years were, were not. They weren't profitable. They were burning cash, like all of those things we talked about. And venture capital has pulled back largely because there's no appetite from investors that were coming to the VC shops to say, hey, we want to participate in this. That money's just gone away, right? So that's, that's, that's the reality. Now, the flip side of it is private equity. So private equity and VC, a lot of people don't understand what the difference is. is. As venture capital, you're investing in these venture startups. You're investing in the startups. Private equity is just the acquisition of, of, of businesses, right? You're, you're buying, maybe you're taking a public company and you're buying it and taking it private. Maybe you're, you're just buying a business that's already private, right? It's just equity in private companies is really what it is. And what you've seen is more and more private equity are seeing opportunities for those great products that are not good businesses that are over a barrel at this point, right? They need a buyer because they're running out of money because VC is not there for the, you know, they're not going to do a down round. There's no appetite for a secondary on the stock market. And if they can get a little bit of a premium to private equity and, and let the business get taken private, and then they can bundle some like, like four, get four or five good software products that can work together. And you can actually make a company right out of them. And that's what private equity is doing right now with, with a, lot of these, a lot of these businesses. I've got one more for you. Jeff, I got one more for you. An area where their capital is about to get very scarce and is already scarce to some extent, but is about to get scarce. Commercial real estate, offices particular. We keep hearing about the bubble, right? The, the refinance bubble that's coming. You got a lot of real estate out there, a lot of offices that they've got debt that's that's coming, that's it's about to mature, right? These are not the the way most of the financing happens for commercial real estate. It's not like your mortgage where it's amortized and you you make a you take out a fifteen year mortgage and fifteen years it's up and you've you own it. These are interest only loans that they take on, right? So you have to refinance the, the entire principal at, at the end of at the end of the term, and interest rates have gone up and property values have gone down. Right. So a lot of these are basically upside down. So. Yeah. And then, you know, the thing that I think is still kind of shaking out, but will probably never go back to the way it was before the pandemic is working at work versus working from home. It was never going to be all work from home. Like some people thought was going to happen after the pandemic, but you're right. I, I don't know the real estate space very well, but I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of articles about it. And w the thing I've gleaned is like, the point you just brought up where basically when 
when leases end and debt needs to be rolled over and stuff and such, and you have lower, lower property values, higher interest rates, like what's going to happen to uh, all these buildings that weren't being utilized like they were back in 2019 and earlier anyway. So it brings up all these other conversations about like, do you start seeing office buildings converted into other things? But that, that's not as easy. It's e more easily said than done in some cases. Like you can't just turn an office building into an apartment necessarily because of the way the different buildings were built and all that kind of stuff. So I agree that that's another place where we're going to see some, where we see some scarce capital. All right. Colin had a second part to his question. So I have some thoughts on this one. Maybe I'll kick it off and then you can jump in. So Colin says, thoughts on dipping your toes in a sector by buying an ETF. I started buying CYBR, which is a cybersecurity ETF. I know next to nothing about cybersecurity, but I know it would be stupid to not have exposure in the sector. So I think, I mean, personally, I, I don't do this, but I've thought about doing it because as I've learned more and more about investing, there's not, I don't think anything, I think it's a good idea actually. If there's a sector that you put into like your too hard bucket, or you just don't want to predict who's going to be the winner in it, I think buying an ETF in that sector is actually a really good idea, either forever or until you learn more. Like, so for example, cybersecurity is one, but an area that's just hard to invest in is like biotechs, right? Because the so much of a biotech's future is binary. They're either going to get their drug FDA approved or they're not. And you're sort of just guessing whether the stock you bought is for a company that's going to make it. So yeah, I don't think I have a, a problem with it. I think it's a good strategy, actually. The one thing I would say, though, is do a little research on what's in the ETF and like what the top holdings are. So I just Googled the one that Colin wrote to us about, and I also just found a couple others. <clears throat> so just as an example, the top few stocks in this CYBR ETF are companies that I know you and I are familiar with, pretty big names in the cybersecurity space. Zscaler, Okta, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto Networks, Booz Allen Hamilton, which is not one I think often comes to mind when you think cybersecurity, yeah. Fortinet. And so that's the top five or six in order in that ETF. But I found another one. It's, a, it's one by, it's an iShares ETF. The ticker is IHAK. And that is a totally different top 10, right? So their number one holding is Palo Alto Networks. Then Science Applications International, which I've never heard of. CACI International, Fortinet, who's Alan Hamilton. So I won't read all of them, but you get the idea. Each ETF is going to have a different top 10 list, different weightings. So I would just say do a little research because the, the downside of an ETF is you might get some junk thrown in there along with some of the big names. Maybe one of them is a diamond in the rough, so you don't know. So that's my take on it. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I largely agree. I think, I think, first of all, I think probably more investors should be using ETFs broadly. Let me rephrase that. I think more people who are buying stocks should probably be using ETFs broadly. They're just really useful and they can, like number one, obviously like the S&P 500 index and you know, total stock market index and some of those are great ways just to get market exposure without having to do all the hard work. But yeah, I, I love the idea for these big secular growth, large tailwind areas like cybersecurity. I think, I think they can be compelling. And you hit the high notes, right? Look in the prospectus, look at the top holdings, right? They're required to report their holdings. And yeah, this is a good example, like the, the, the cyber, this one, 
just so people know, this trades on the Toronto Exchange. And of course, our good friend Colin is is in Canada. So it makes sense for him for a lot of reasons to buy something that's that's a trader on the uh, Toronto Exchange. Again, to know what you want to know what it holds, but you also need to know how much you're paying for it. In this case, this is one that the expense ratio is 0.4%. And what that means is every year they're going to take 0.4% of the assets. That's the cut. That's the take that the asset manager takes to run it. And that's, that, I mean, that, that's a little on the higher side, um, but that's not atypical for some of these specialized ETFs. They do tend to take a little bit higher expense ratio. For, for example, like most of the, like the, the iShares and the Fidelity and Vanguard's S&P 500 index fund, you're talking about like 0.1% or less, right? So we're talking like a dime, a dime for every $100 you invest in them like the just incredibly low, low, low rates versus 40 cents for every $10 you invest in this case. And it doesn't sound like much money, but over you know 20 or 30 years, that expense ratio can add up. So at least know what it is. And, and you, if you're going to pay a premium expense ratio, you need to be investing in it because you're expecting to get alpha. In other words, alpha meaning better performance than the index, right? The S&P 500. That's why you would be buying this is, is to get that. So, yeah, another way case, you could go ahead. No, I was just gonna say another way you could go to that end. If you really want to start looking at expense ratios and things like that, you could find a broader technology ETF that might have a lower expense ratio because it's not so niche, but might have a few cybersecurity companies in the, in the, the top 10 or 20 holdings, right? You'll also get things like Apple and Microsoft and NVIDIA and things like that, but that could get you a little bit of exposure with maybe a lower expense ratio maybe a little more diversification. So it's just another thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, this particular fund, it's like 70% in the top 10 holdings, right? And they're the, like the names you mentioned, Zscaler, CrowdStrike, Fortinet. Actually, I like the Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm, I just, people might be like, what is that? It's, they're, they're basically a defense contractor that really right. focuses on technology and cybersecurity, right? So so really, you, you know, they're going to get paid. You know where their money's coming from and, and, and they're going to they're gonna make money. So I like that. Okay, what's next? All right, so we got a message from Hulk Lee on Twitter, I believe. And Hulk says, love your podcast, learned a lot from it. Recently, I'm interested in Peloton, and I have a question about this company. I noticed the financial fundamentals of this company have been improving over several consecutive quarters since the appointment of the new CEO. Based on your experience, how, do you, how would you evaluate the performance of the new CEO? So for anyone who hasn't been following Peloton's founder and CEO stepped down more than a year ago at this point. They brought in Barry McCarthy, who, where, where did he come from, Jason? Do you remember what his background was? He came from another company. I'll look it up or Jason will look it up while I'm talking. And basically came in to fix the company, like fix the fundamentals, get it back on it's track. Spotify maybe? Yeah, maybe. And I haven't looked at the actual financial results in detail since I sold my shares probably more than a year ago at this point. But I know that things have been getting better. Peloton always had a strong brand, rabid, excited users. Some of those metrics continued to do well, even as the company had larger financial trouble, like their churn rate's still really, really low. People stick, people stay once they are members. They just got a little bit too over their skis in terms of being trying to be a hardware company when the strength is really in their app and in their software and in their instructors. So I think under McCarthy, they've gotten a lot of the financial stuff heading in the right direction. They've kind of pivoted to be more of a app first 
software workout anywhere with our app kind of company. It just anecdotally, I started, we, we have a Peloton bike and I just started using the app recently for some non-bike stuff. And I was, I haven't used it maybe in six or seven months. And I was shocked at like how much new and different things there are. Like now they have like a gym, something about a gym, gym mode or something where you can just listen on headphones, like as if you were in the gym. So you don't have to be tethered to like a screen or your phone, like looking at something and it just gives you audio cues is my understanding. So I don't know. It seems to me like they're doing, he's doing the right thing. Um, you know, it's going to take probably some more time to really get it back on track, but if they can get the fundamentals heading in the right direction, keep the the users and the and growing and happy and that, you know, it trades it now a much more reasonable valuation. Like there's really no reason it, it's, it couldn't be a good, a good investment from here. Um, now that all of the crazy run up that we saw in 2020 and 21 is behind us. So I think he's done a good job just from my not deep dive into the financials quarter to quarter. What do you, have you looked at it any closer than that, Jason? No, and I probably never will. I'm, I'm kidding. I, he's not <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I, but no, I've like, I've actually, I have, I've, I've, I've read, I've, I do actually read, read the releases because so many people are interested in it. Right. And I, and I know it's one that you're interested in. And our, our friend, Travis Hoyam has, has, he talked about it on the show when he came on his yeah. asymmetric investing. And he, he talked about exactly what you're talking about, that they're moving away from the hardware, the cyclical part of the business, getting their cost structure, getting their cost structure kind of in a better place where they're like their lower expenses or like where their fixed expenses are lower and starting to benefit like from like internet economics instead of like cyclical manufacturing economics. So I like those things. I really do. The one observation that, that I have is that I just, I don't understand what is the potential addressable market? Like how big is it really? Mm -hmm. And again, I think the biggest competition for what they're trying to do now is going to be Apple. I think it really is. You're not really, you're not competing against, like they always tried to say they're competing against the gyms and, and now they're, you're competing against Apple, yeah. which, has, which has made a concerted effort to make fitness a big part of their ecosystem. And, and that is a, I mean, that is a, man, I, I don't know if that's a company I want to compete with. Can they be the Pepsi to, to Apple's Coke in this? Maybe, but again, it's, it's, is the market share really going to be more like tab, right? Do you, yeah. Like, do you, well, how many people actually get that reference to tab? Is, yeah, is the no, no, I, I get it. I guess I think, that's the point. I think it is hard. I mean, that's a really good point. I just recently subscribed to Apple's like Apple Plus or Apple One subscription because between me and my son's Apple Music subscriptions and our, the cloud storage stuff, it made sense to just subscribe to their bundle, which is why Apple does as well as it does. But with that came the Apple fitness subscription, which I don't use, I don't plan to use, but I did like click on it to see what it was about. And it looks exactly like Peloton. I mean, it's, exactly, if they have right. a studio, they have engaging instructors. And one thing I, I do wonder, Jason, I don't, I don't know, this is just me speculating is like when the contract comes up for some of these Peloton stars and, and does one of them go to Peloton and go, Hey, listen, Apple is going to pay me X to go do their fitness thing. And then can Peloton compete? Does this become like free agency in, in, in sports right. where, right. you know, Apple's just going to pay the big names from Peloton to come over to their app. So that'll be interesting to watch. But if they can keep that part of it sustained, maybe they do have a first mover advantage there to the, to Hulk Lee's point. I do think the CEO has done just about as well as you could have hoped considering what he inherited. Yeah, that's hard to argue with. 
Uh, that really is. But but I think uh, the the way here's the last thing I'll say about it is I think you have to be careful when evaluating any business and seeing a CEO come in and the turnaround start to be good and start to work and mistaking, hey, a CEO is doing a good job for, oh, hey, this is a good stock to buy. It's not always the same thing, right? So you just have to be mindful, mindful of that. All right, let's let's jump to one of the ones that we got from our our good friend Travis, actually. Okay, what did Travis what did Travis have to say for us? So his question was, had the AI bubble popped? And that's I, the most lawyer question in the world because he asked the question that he knows the answer to. Well, I so I actually think this is interesting because yeah. I I, th- I might have said this on a previous episode, but I'll say it again because I, I want to know like what you think about it. And you can tell me if you think this is a completely crazy way of thinking about it. I don't think the AI bubble, quote unquote, is a bubble in the sense that like the crypto bubble was or 3D printing was. Like I do think AI is going to be a thing. And I think we're going to see more and more of it in our lives. So in that sense... I don't know if it has popped or, or I don't know how to answer that question in that sense. Like, I don't think this is a fad, like some of the other bubble things have been. No, it's, However, like, it's like the internet bubble. And, and again, I right. don't want to draw yeah, yeah, an exact yeah. correlation because it's, it's a thing that there was massive early association from investors. Investors were trying to get an early. They ran stuff way up. They got way ahead of valuations. They bought a bunch of junk that said AI that was junk and not AI. And you could you can replace internet or dot com with AI in this conversation, and right. then the internet stuff. I, here we are. We this podcast exists because of the internet, right? But it's twenty years later. But yeah, no, that's all true, and that's sort of where I'm where I'm getting at from like a like a first look at it kind of standpoint. But then here's the other thing: like AI, I think is becoming a catch all phrase for a bunch of really different things. Like, oh yeah, yeah. AI has been happening in all of our lives for years. And it's been working in the background and we, and in ways we probably aren't even cognizant of because they're so normal now. Auto, auto correct, auto fill on Google, your Spotify playlist, that's all AI and machine learning and things like that. But then all of a sudden a, a large language model thing like chat GPT comes, becomes a public facing thing. And ever, and, and then that's where I think the bubble has come. And I, I think that I don't know that the mania around it has really gone away yet. I, I'm curious to see as we enter earnings season at the end of next week, how much CEOs try to shoehorn AI into the, into their press releases again. Now that we're three months after they they did that the last time, so I don't know if it's popped necessarily. I I still think people are going to try to say, and because I still get press releases in my mailbox in my inbox from companies that I I'm on mailing lists for. You know, just a random company you'd never think of just putting out a press release about how AI is changing, making their business better. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's popped yet. I think maybe it's not going to pop. It's just going to kind of slowly deflate. <laughs> and maybe we're starting to see some of that. But yeah, I do I, I think, think it's different than some of the other bubbles we've seen. I, th- I think instead of thinking about this in terms of bubbles, I need to think we need to think about this in terms of the hype cycle. I think is a better, because again, the term bubble, we apply that to things that were there was, it was empty, right? It was full of air. There wasn't anything of value there. And I don't, and, and I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that that's not the truth with AI, right? And AI is going to potentially over the next century, century could be the most powerful influence on humanity. And I think it's 
I think it's likely that artificial intelligence writ large is going to be the thing that fundamentally affects more people's lives over the next century than anything else. Maybe everything else combined, right? Even climate change, right? I think that that's not I don't disagree. I just think we were heading in that direction, whether or not Absolutely. Chat, chat GPT came out, I guess is the, my point. The Exactly. And that's the, the point that I wanted to make is really you go back to the spring and the when people say AI now, the average person says AI, they mean generative AI. They mean these large language model based learn, learning, like, like chat GPT and what's the one that Alphabet's doing, Bard, I believe. Mm -hmm. So the, those are... That's what people mean. They don't think about all of the other things that are that are that AI is doing, right? Facial recognition, like all the stuff that's been going on for two decades that that AI is 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 behind. Because this is AI that that sounds that feels more like a person. I think that's the big thing. Because it can talk to you, it can write back to you, right? And you can feel like you're engaging and interacting with it. And essentially all of the other AI that we've dealt with is it feels impersonal and it's a machine or it's something that's invading our privacy or it's however it was built. Maybe there's biases that were built into it that make it not work well. Like, for example, like facial recognition being really crap when it comes to people with brown skin, right? Little things like that that are... The, they, it just, it seems like there's, that's maybe that's the transcendent moment we're having is that this is the AI that feels more like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested to see with this next earnings cycle, not only how many times it gets mentioned in press releases and earnings reports, but yeah, are there any companies that put results out or have guidance that's really obviously driven by something related to AI? Like for example, when NVIDIA so you mean Get, any companies that are not NVIDIA or Taiwan Semiconductor? Well, or even company. NVIDIA again. Like, I, yeah, I'm just curious right. to see if we see any big pops in a stock price that's something that's directly related to, to like a legit use of AI. Like, does that happen again? And I don't know, maybe that'll give us an indication of whether we're still yeah. in that hype cycle, like you were saying. Well, here, here's some hype for you. NVIDIA, so we're recording this on August 10th. July 10th. NVIDIA closed with a, excuse me, July 10th. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Where did that This is go? coming to you from the future. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by ChatGPT. Um, <laughs> NVIDIA stock still trades for a trillion dollar market cap. I don't want to say that's obscene, but I think that that is a massively forward-looking valuation because do I think this is a trillion dollar company? Yeah, absolutely. At some point in the future. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to earn that valuation at some point in the future. I just don't know how far in the future. It's certainly going to be not August 10th. Yeah. I'm curious. They were guiding for 11, I think $11 billion in revenue in Q2. I'm, cu I'm curious if that comes in at like 10 or 10.5 or nine, does yeah. the stock drop 15%? <laughs> I'm curious to see. Right. Cause it's priced for perfection right now. So they have a, they have to, they have a high bar to get over. Right, we got another, we got another one that, that I think is particularly relevant right now, because I think a lot of people that found our podcasts and engaged with us, it happens on Twitter. Yeah. And, and I think this was from our friend Cena. I think he's the one who proposed yeah. this one. So yeah. I want to give him a, a shout out. And I love this because it's real, it, it gives, it gives me a chance to talk about my massive mistake of choosing meta for the unportfolio in our competition. But you're the question is, it, will you're just bringing it up before I do. Well, yeah, I figure that that's the right thing I should say after or right before I remind everyone that I won Q2. Okay. Moving on. 
The question is, will threads be good for meta? And I think it absolutely will be because anything they can do to monetize and or draw attention back to the reason we all know this business to begin with, which is their family of apps and away from the pile of cash they're setting on fire to try to make the metaverse work, I think is smart for the company. So that, that, that's kind of, the, that's my hot yeah. take on that. So I, I think a couple of things, I think the number one is meta has had a decade to do this right and hasn't done it over the past decade for some pretty clear reasons and the 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 two reasons that are the most obvious and I think are 95% of the reason they didn't is number 1 twitter already existed right and as we've learned through meta's growth from facebook to the business now with that like you said the family of apps is it's become that family of apps by acquiring them right buying really good platforms like they tried to do something that was better than Instagram and it was terrible. They tried to do, and they ended up acquiring Instagram. They tried to do something better than Snapchat that was pretty awful and they canned it, right? And they stopped trying to chase Snapchat's business. They never really made a serious effort before now to go after Twitter's business because Twitter already existed. That's reason one. Reason 1A of those two reasons is it's a pretty crappy low return business. Twitter sh struggled forever to monetize the platform, right? That was always the problem. And the reason Elon Musk was even able to, to get an offer out there that the board would, would accept was it was a terrible public company. It was a low return business. They really struggled to make money. The whole advertising model wasn't good. They could never figure out a good way to make money with a paid platform. And Musk bought the business and has absolutely gutted it, right? Has absolutely eviscerated the business, hollowed it out from the inside. And it got to a point where the business was so weak, then it became a clear opportunity, even though this is a low margin business. Again, it gets what it gets back to, to me, Jeff, is what we were talking about, about what's happened with startups over the past 10 or 12 years is great products, not a great business. Meta is a great place for a great product to live, right? Because you can leverage resources across multiple platforms. You have one accounting department, right? You have you know, one, one department that can deal with like all of your different regulatory issues in different areas, right? You don't have to take all that expense on one business. You can pass it across half a dozen different apps. And now it makes sense because Twitter is so weak right now from a business perspective, from a technology, from like the, having smart people I'm going to share a little something here. It's a little inside, a little inside baseball. Our episode on fighting chimps and picking stocks, I decided I wanted to test something. I wanted to promote it on Twitter. Twitter actually failed to promote it. Like I did a five-day promotion. Not going to say the dollar amount. They never actually like were able to promote it. And like if you look in the app where we you see that kind of stuff. Like it, like it shows like they promoted it, but it's like literally all zero percents and zero dollars. And then there's a button I can click promote it again. Like it's, this is clearly you're going after a business that's in a position of weakness right now. And so, but here's the last thing, last thing. I know I'm rambling here, but last thing about this, will threats be good for meta is, is indetermined because humans are lazy and Twitter still exists. 
and generally we see all of the noisy stuff, all of like the, the, like the, it's almost always a really loud minority. Right. And I don't like, I don't know if Twitter is really is weak from like a user experience as we really think it is. Like there was the stuff about seeing 300 tweets and like all of that kind of stuff. I think that stuff doesn't affect 99% of users. Right. I just, I don't think it does. So I don't, I don't know if it's going to be good for meta or not. Here's where I think they actually, as much as I don't want to see Meta do well, because it's a business I happen to just personally dislike immensely, I think they have a lot of, a lot going for them. So first of all, yeah. their acquisition costs are virtually zero because all you have to do is use your Instagram account, which billions of people have one, click a few buttons and boom, you're on threads. So as someone who has set up a post account and set up a blue sky account to try to like, see if there's any life after Twitter, I was like, do I really want two more accounts? So, so like anyone who feels that way, he's like, well, I already have these accounts. Like this isn't anything new that I know there's like data privacy issues, but if you have a Facebook and an Instagram account, guess what? They have all that data already. Anyway. So the, it's the like, network, this is the network effect benefits kicking right. in. So, so that's yeah. the first thing they have going for them. Yeah. Virtually yeah. no acquisition costs. Second of all, I, I don't even know if they need to monetize it. Like, or, or monetize it much because again, it's part, it's not it, like Twitter is its own thing it is Twitter had to monetize Twitter because Twitter was only Twitter. They could probably burn a little bit of money on threads for a long time and have it just be part of, part of the part of their business that is in the it's red the, while the, everything the, else like is in the black. It's almost like the loss leader, right? Just it's, right. it's there to be part of the network. And, and honestly, if you, event. you can make the they argument that- They know how to monetize stuff, Jeff. They know how to. Right. And if but you're number and, one, and, you don't fire all of your engineers that handle like the, the code for when somebody says, I want to give you some money to promote something where that breaks for five days and you can't take their money. But here's, but here's the, and here's the last thing I'll say. Musk is all about free speech and, and not telling anyone they can't say anything. And that's some his, people's his, cup. His free speech. Regardless, it's some people's cup of tea. Some people like that aspect of what he's changed about Twitter. Right. But for everyone who doesn't and still wants some level of moderation, Facebook has taken a different approach in that way. And I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I think that's going to offer an alternative to people who might have stayed at Twitter and not really liked some of those changes to go over to Facebook and, and kind of see how they do it. So it, yeah. it'll be interesting to see. It's a good question. I don't, as a personally don't care because I don't plan on ever yeah. buying Meta. I, I, if I were... If I had to guess, I'd say this this has a good chance of working out working out well for them. Even if it's wildly successful, this is my last point on this one. Even if it's wildly successful, it's not going to be a big enough profit driver to move the needle. Agreed. But it could be, if it is wildly successful, it's probably the nail in the coffin of what was a really big competitor. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right. So to close out the first part of the show, um, we got a message from someone that I think we, we wanted to share because I, I think it speaks to, you know, what, what we're hoping all people who listen to our podcast are able to do. We're not going to give the name of this person only because there's some numbers in here that we're not sure this person would want us to share. Yeah. We but, got, we got it in a DM to the show yeah. account. Well, why so don't you read know. it, read it, Jason, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. You, you know who you are. Thank you for sending us this message. It just said, just wanted to drop a line to thank you guys for educating us home gamers. I first became acquainted with investing in March, 2020. 
when the pandemic drop happened. Sound familiar, Jeff? A lot of people, a lot of people, this is when they really started. Either they found investing for the first time or, or found their conviction to get committed to it. So that was really good. And what this person says, that's when they subscribe to The Molly Fool. Again, something that has to sound familiar to a lot of people listening to us right now. Pulled $15,000 out of savings account and bought for, for per the plan. I started focusing on increasing my percentage invested from W-2 wages, increased from my 1099 consulting business. So this is somebody, both their, their payroll to their 401k and their side, their side hustle. That's fantastic to further fuel that fire. Three years, $15,000 to $225,000, wife and I combined. That, that's a win. That's a win. Again, you know who you are that sent this to us. You celebrate this success. You, you, you own, own this. Own this. You, you did this. You did this. Did you get help along the way? We all do. Every one of us does. But beat your chest, have a cocktail, hug your spouse. Fantastic. Good on you. Good on you. And for anybody, anybody that's listening to this, that maybe, maybe they started investing in October of 2021, right? Maybe early 2022. Maybe you're looking at yours and you're like, well, I started at 225 and now I'm down to 15. No, it's not that. Not that no, my point <laughs> is you're looking at maybe not these great results. You can do it. You absolutely can do it. Don't get so caught up in the one part of the cycle. This is a person that invested through that same downturn too, Jeff, but they were fortunate that they started in the middle of a, of a, a deeply down market, right? So yeah. don't give up. Keep, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Yeah. The thing that jumps out to me as someone who went through a little bit of a similar trajectory, and at least in terms of my individual stock buying life, I mean, I've said before, I've been investing in my retirement account since I started working. And so that's where I don't really consider myself to be a new investor. And, and I, I lived through the great financial crisis in terms of seeing how my, my investment account went down a lot for a few years and then came back. So I've seen kind of both sides of a couple different cycles now. But the, the thing that I think I like to come back to a lot is the best day to start investing is today and the second best day is tomorrow. Right. right? Like, so you, yep. you have to start somewhere and you have to stick with it and you have to do it through all types of markets because it, it's just the time in the market that makes the biggest difference. You can, I'm not, I don't have them, the stats in front of me, but you can Google this and find all these different charts and data that shows you that starting at 19 is better than starting at 29 is better than starting at 39 is better than starting at 49. So whether it was March of 20, whether it was November of 21, whether it was April of 22, starting is the most important thing and sticking with it is the second most important thing. Absolutely. All right. So again, thank you for that wonderful, wonderful message. Jeff, let's take a little break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, everybody. Welcome back from that little break there. Again, thanks for all those great questions. If you have more questions that you want us to answer in a future episode of our mailbag, please go ahead and send them to us. DM the show. Send them to our Twitters. You can find all that in the show notes. Show email address accounts in there too. If you prefer to email, please get those to us. All right, what are we gonna? What do we got? What do we got lined up here for our our our, our B block, Jeff? So we have a little announcement we'd like to make. For we, you've been tweeting about this, teasing it for the last couple couple weeks, but we are planning an an in person event with some of our closest investing friends in Washington D.C. in August, and, 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 and Lou Whiteman. And Lou Whiteman, yes, our closest investing friends and Lou Whiteman. Now we'll see if he actually listens. We'll, we will see. Don't, no one tell Lou. We want to see if he listens to, to hear what we just said. So Jason, why don't you give the details on this event and then we'll, we'll chat about it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm extremely excited, excited about this. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little, I've got a little bit of trepidation because this is the first time we've done something like this, but it's called Money Collaborative. So you'll be able to go to moneycollaborative.com to register for this. So I want to share that as well. Our good friend, Travis Foyam is set up something for folks to be able to register and to pay. And like I said, this is an in-person event. A group of us were going to be in Alexandria and we decided this was an excellent opportunity to host something for our listeners, for people that subscribe to like Lou, Lou Whiteman's, for people that subscribe to fits and starts, Lou's a blog that he does, asymmetric investing, of course, Travis Hoyam, Tyler is going to be there. Tyler Crow, who does a lot of the stock videos with me that folks see on our YouTube channel. And Matthew Frankel, CFP, Matt, who's, who's been on our show, has a great YouTube channel. He's also going to be there. So what we're looking to do is from two to six on August 18th, that's a Friday. It's going to be at Lost Boy Cider in Alexandria. It's in, in Old Town, Alexandria. We're going, to, we're going to have an event. So we're going to be doing some different conversations based on what some of these great guests are are experts in. So Matt Frankel, for example, is going to come on and he's going to talk about personal finance, real estate, different topics that he knows. Travis is going to focus on helping talk about how he finds asymmetric opportunities. Tyler Crow is maybe one of the best people I know at, at finding huge winners that are just completely overlooked. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. My guess is that Lou probably is just going to show up and then tell us he doesn't want to talk because he has the superpower of saying no to things he doesn't want to do. One of my favorite things that we're doing, and I'm really excited about this, we're going to record an episode of The Smattering. We're going to do it live. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Part of that, I'm hoping for our B block, is we could take some questions from people that are there, take them live and make that part of the show. So I'm super excited about that. Price, if you book it before August 13th, $100. If you book it after the 13th, again, assuming spaces are still available, it's $100. If there's any spaces left over, they're going to be $150 until, until it's sold out if anybody books after the 13th. It's limited to 50 spaces. So if you're able to go, please book now. Again, we'll have some info on the show notes. You can click to, to, to find it. It's moneycollaborative.com is the website. 
really, really excited about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It'll be really fun to do a live version of the podcast. In fact, you know, it'll be cool to do it in front of an audience, but honestly, it'll be the first time you and I have ever done a podcast in the same room. So that'll be, that'll be kind of fun for us too. But, you know, having gotten to know Matt, Travis, Tyler, and Lou over the past couple of years has been really helpful in my investing life. We, we're lucky we can shoot these guys a text message whenever we have a question or want to kick an idea around and we get a combination of really good insight. So if anyone's in the, in the area, in the DC, Alexandria, Virginia area, want to come down, I think this will be a really fun event with some really great people who mm -hmm. are just nice, humble, regular investors who just like to help people. We're going to, we'll have food there too. It's going to be, it's at least it's four, it's a four hour event. There'll be a cocktail hour at the end. One of the other things I want to point out, and I think this is really useful because Jeff, you've talked about it. Most of us like in our regular lives or day-to-day -day lives, we don't have a lot of people that are passionate about investing in the same way we are. And I think the opportunity to meet other just regular people that are passionate about investing in an event like this can also be extremely, extremely valuable too. So not just the half dozen of us that you're going to show up to listen to and to talk to, but look around the people sitting next to you at the tables too. I think there'll be a, a great opportunity to meet some amazing people. So hope to see everybody there. All right, Jeff, we have once again, done the thing that we do. We did it. Okay, friends, as always, we love to give our answers these hard investing questions, but it is up to you to get your own answer. You can do it. I believe in you. All right. We'll see you next time, Jeff. See you next time.